Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Welcome to the OsteoTalk podcast. Today, we hear from a highly knowledgeable and inspiring Dr. Wael Mahmood. Wael had the privilege of learning under some of the great names in osteopathy and has followed in their footsteps, becoming an educator, mentor, and passionate practitioner. He is the director of CPD Health Courses and in 2021 published his book, Two Hands, The Game Changer Guide for Manual Therapists a book that celebrates the unique gift we have as manual therapists and how we can thrive as healthcare professionals. On today's episode, Well guides us through his truly holistic approach to lateral elbow pain and frozen shoulder, as well as embracing our role as manual therapists in evidence-focused healthcare. Welcome to the OsteoTalk podcast, Well. Thank you, Emily. I'm really excited about today because uh, I'm talking to a fellow osteopath. I love talking to osteopaths in my profession. We're a small but rare breed. Uh, but uh, yes, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, look, I'm, I'm very excited from the, the brief chats we've had already. I was already feeling very inspired. So um, yeah, very much looking forward to this. Can you start by giving us a brief history of your osteopathic career? Sure, I'll keep it brief. Uh, well, so I uh, began osteopathy in 1981, uh, dare I say, maybe before you were born, Emily, and uh, over in the UK, in London, at the British School of Osteopathy. And uh, I, to be honest, which I'm always trying to be honest about this, but I had no idea what an osteopath was at that time. I was 18, just finished my A-levels, and I uh, wanted to do something uh, that was medical. And uh, my mother, in fact, suggested that I should uh, look into osteopathy. I went along for the interview. I was interviewed by the principal. She asked me, why do I want to be an osteopath? And as an 18-year-old boy, I mentioned all the reasons why I thought that I wanted to be an osteopath. And then she said, what about helping people? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> obviously. But um, I, so I, I, it grew on me, osteopathy. I, I can't tell you that I've always wanted to be an osteopath since I was three, but I did uh, the osteo course in London, and I'm so glad I did at that time because I was very fortunate. My cohort uh, was taught by some of the best osteopaths in our profession, uh, including Laurie Hartman, of course, HVLA guru, uh, Steve Sandler, uh, another person that uh, has actually visited Australia and taught here. Uh, a lot of the technique faculty there are real experts in their field. And uh, so I was very lucky to, to have a lot of uh, education that was taught by the best. And probably the best thing about the BSO we, we, was that we were full in our clinic. I would start my day at, say, two o'clock, uh, in the afternoon, my clinic shift as a student in the third and fourth year, and I'd have wall-to-wall -wall patients of real people in London who wanted real results. So 
we were really uh, lucky to, to have that experience because it prepared us really well for the real world out there. So we saw a lot of patients who had a thousand hours, real thousand hours of treating patients, which was really exciting for us. So uh, 87, I worked for uh, other people after I graduated uh, as a uh, locum. And then I landed a job in Epsom with a wonderful man called Brian Hounsfield, who gave me my first break in osteopathy. I filled in for somebody. I treated a few patients. And by my second day, he said, you want to stay? So I did. And I was very uh, fortunate to have Brian helping me and mentoring me. He would come in to help me with any patient that I had any problems with in my first year there or could be in the second year. And then uh, my wife, who's also an osteopath, uh, she uh, had this amazing uh, uh, trip to Australia some years back and always wanted to go back. So we thought it'd be a great idea to um, come over here. And I applied for a job that was going at the time. Uh, it was posted up at the British School of Osteopathy because I was tutoring there. And uh, it said that uh, they were looking for a clinician at uh, what was then called Philip Institute of Technology, which is now called RMIT in Bandura. I had no idea where Melbourne was or Bandura for that matter. And uh, we arrived here after I got the job. So I got the job while I was still in uh, the UK. I arrived here on October the 8th in 1987. It was a rainy, wet day in Melbourne. Uh, Tullamarine was one level, a little shack of an airport and we both thought what have we done we've come from the center of the universe london to melbourne sunny old melbourne or was it anyway i loved the next 34 years and uh, that brings us to now but uh, i'll try and make this story a little shorter then because i've probably been going on for a bit longer than you thought but um so i, I became head of clinic at um the uh, philip institute of technology and uh, really, our profession here now owes uh, the, the existence of our profession and where we've got to now to many of the people who came before me, people like Philip Tian, Alan Woodley, Jerry Benish, Kevin Sturgis, uh, Sturgis and Janine Sturgis. They ran the, the school single-handedly with very few resources. And then I came along and then Cynthia Tucker came along uh, from the UK. They all uh, helped out on the course. We had a wonderful group of students. I was very fortunate to teach the very first osteopaths. Uh, I call them the first class osteopaths. Well, in fact, they call themselves that, who were the first graduates of a government-funded course in the world for osteopaths. So they included people that you might know, people like Mick Kelly, uh, people like Glenn Bales, people like Margaret Matthews. These people are Gary Fryer, who uh, is uh, the principal of uh, VU Clinic. All these people were students when I uh, was teaching there. So, um, yeah, I, I loved that. And since then, I've been working in private practice. I had, I've had several businesses, several clinics since then. I have uh, also got a master's degree in acupuncture. Um, that's a whole new story, maybe another podcast about how I got into that. And then uh, I became president of the AOA uh, back then uh, in the early 90s. So that was a great time for us because we joined our New South Wales counterparts and that was a really good experience to switch over from being uh, only a Victorian-based association to a more nationwide university that we've got now. And um, now I teach dry needling as part of my um, CPD health courses business. 
and I mentor my daughter, Amina, who is the third osteopath in our family. Uh, so my wife and I and her now, I work from home. So yeah, I teach dry needling and work in a clinic with my daughter. Was that way too long? I'm sorry. No, that is absolutely fine. Um, can I just say your daughter is uh, very lucky to have two in-house mentors. <laughs> yeah, look, we, we love having her. Uh, she's such a, a good student and uh, she's you know, very excited about her career and, and so are we. She, she's got some uh, really um, good ideas about where she wants to go. She has, she's a horse rider, which is why I'm still working uh, to uh, <laughs> keep that going. But um, a little bit like flying, which we've both spoken about. But um, she uh, has, a, has a horse and she wants to do animal or equine osteopathy. She wants to, of course, join the team as a dry needling presenter. And she wants to treat people. I love seeing that excitement and uh, I'm going to help her as much as can. Every child, sorry, every parent wants to see their children do better than they will and I'm sure she will. Well, she's got a a high bar to reach there. Um, Given how long you have been in practice for, I'm really interested to know, um, you know, you've really witnessed the evolution of osteopathy in Australia. Where do you see the current role of osteopathy in, in a really evidence-based world of allied health? Yeah, uh, a good question. Um, and one that's been on my mind for, well, since, well, since my daughter's been doing osteopathy and probably for the last five to 10 years or so where I've seen a real shift in our profession, moving towards substantiating what we do and a real shift from what I was uh, taught and how I was taught at the BSO. And um, I firmly believe that we have, as osteopaths, a unique opportunity to take the pole position of being the manual therapy, hands-on practitioners that I think people, the public, really want and they respond well to, and they, uh, they're looking for that uh, something which is now becoming even more of a void. The way I see it now, and I talk to lots of different professions during my dry needling courses, because we attract physios, chiros, osteos, massage therapists to come to our courses. So uh, what I hear from them are that physiotherapists, the way they're being taught at the moment, is that they're being trained to work in the hospital environment. They're not being adequately prepared for the role of a physiotherapist in private practice. And there's a lot of frustration there within the profession with that because uh, when you are trained in a hospital environment, it's a completely different situation to working at the sharp end, as I call it, uh, with a room, four walls, and a person who is paying you to get better now, today, not wasting any minute. That's the, that's the sharp end. That's the pressure. And uh, so uh, you're not going to get paid whatever happens. You're going to get paid. Well, that person's going to come back if you do something that's useful. And so that is a problem. So I see the physiotherapist moving away from that hands-on work that they have been known for and their proud profession has been uh, associated with. And then I see the chiropractors, they're doing the same thing. They have to become, there are a few incidents that have probably happened in the last three, four years that their profession and their um, universities and institutions have thought, right, we're going to become more evidence-based. 
And uh, then, and this left us going, well, okay, let's do the same thing. Let's substantiate everything that we do. Now, I'm not saying that we want to go away from evidence or there's not a role for evidence. Of course there is. I think that's not the only thing. And we need to uh, really understand how lucky we are to be that profession that can use the two things that are, in, that are on the end of our arms to help people. Because in the end, whatever you say, whether it's the evidence or not, the customer who is the patient, all they want is you to put their hands, put your hands on them to, to help them. That's all they want. And so that role of being a hands-on practitioner excites me when I walk into a room where I'm treating. I've been treating all day today. Uh, so I treat for a, a day a week and I see my regulars that I used to treat when I owned a practice in Beaumaris and uh, my daughter's watching and we just have to have such good fun. These people are lifetime friends of, of mine and I love seeing the improvements, the, the, the hands, I feel things, I move things, I think outside the box, I try and associate, I see patterns and I just continually learn every day that I see a patient. But that's so exciting for me. So for me, evidence is, there is a role. There is a role for that within some parts of our work with chronic pain and so on. But I think we have to ask ourselves, why did we go towards that? Well, why are we trying to prove all this stuff when for years now, people have been coming to see osteopaths without any of this move towards evidence? I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I'm saying there's a role for it but there's also a bigger role for doing what we know and what we can see works, what has worked for, for years for us as osteopaths and our predecessors will tell you. So I do think that things have changed. We need to be careful to be looking at where's the opportunity here because I can see a massive road for us right in front of us because the other two major professions are moving towards another area, which is fine. I have no problem with that. That's that's the professional. I can't comment on other professions other than what I can see. But I can see that massive road, like two cars in front of you, we're behind, we can go straight ahead and take that pole position of being that hands-on profession that I know works, has worked for me for the last 36 years. And I know that bringing in that extra stuff, the, the evidence base is great, but not taking over our whole uh, hands-on work that we do. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, you know, it can be difficult trying to find that balance is, is how do we integrate the evidence but still stay true to the, the essence of osteopathy and, and what we do and what we're good at. Um, Absolutely. I think that the other thing is that when, when, we, when I think about what's the etiology, what, what's the etiology of where we're going, is that perhaps what's happened is the, the, the uh, educational institutions have been under pressure to substantiate their courses with evidence. And um, unfortunately, that pressure has then gone to, okay, well, we better stop doing anything that has no evidence or very little evidence, which is pretty much anything that we do. And that's the same for any um, hands-on work that it's very difficult to, uh, to, to provide evidence for some of the things that we do. Some of it is purely empirical, historical, and, and is experience-based. But I think there's a role for that. I mean, that's how we learn in any other field. If we look at 
other professions, not, not manual therapy. How do people learn how to do uh, carpentry? How do, how do people learn how to do um, any other skill or cooking or any of those things? They teach each other by what has worked for them. And um, one other thing, if I may, is that one of the weaknesses that we have is the problem that new graduates have. They come out of university after studying really hard, gaining a massive uh, hex debt, and now, okay, this is your room, this is mine, we'll see you at the end of the day. And bear in mind, we'll need some KPIs, I'm going to make sure that you're full by the end of uh, this next trial period. Well, hang on a minute, what happened there? Like, how did that transition, particularly uh, when we're not seeing a lot of patients in the student clinics, not a lot of experience, and therefore that then translates into frustration, into, well, I don't know what to do. I'll just tell the patient, come back if you need to. Um, you'll be fine now because you're worried about that patient coming back and saying, well, I'm no better. Because if they know better, they're not coming back anymore. That's a problem. So I feel there's a real role for people who have been in the profession for a long time, people with experience, and there's many of those people I've already mentioned, to offer an internship, a scholarship, which exists in so many other fields, including medicine. Nobody comes out of medical school and is left with a scalpel and say, off you go do that surgery. No, you're monitored by somebody else, many other people. There's a whole system there that supports you. We've lost that system. I could not agree more. And I think we need to have a separate episode on um, <laughs> um, the role of osteopathy and how to nurture our new graduates. Now we're going to dive into some common conditions that patients often seek dry needling for and talk about how you approach them osteopathically and how you integrate your needling techniques. So we're going to start with lateral elbow pain. Great. Okay. Well, lateral elbow pain, really common, of course. Uh, glad you're calling it lateral elbow pain, not tennis elbow, because I can only think of really one patient that I've treated in the last probably 10 years that's actually got lateral elbow pain from playing tennis uh, or a sport. Uh, usually it's something that is related to either they don't know how they got it, that's pretty common, or they've done something repetitively unusual. So they've done some DIY at the weekend, or they've done some heavy lifting, some rep repetition, something like that. So I love this one because I can incorporate both osteopathic treatment as well as my dry needling skills. Not that the two are completely different. We're still targeting trigger points, knots in muscles, hypersensitive nodules within torque bands. Uh, but uh, putting them all together is really um, helpful uh, for, for patients to have those skills, put them all together. So what I look at, first of all, is apart from, you know, we can skip through the, the, uh, the usual stuff in the history. We've got that down. Then we're going to get you to stand. I'm going to have a look at what causes your pain. What, what's the movements that are causing your pain? And what's your posture looking like when you're standing, when you're doing that particular task? So I'm going to look for 
any uh, dysfunction as far as any neck rotation issues, side bending, uh, whether the ribs are symmetrical, whether one shoulder is more anterior than the other, whether your arms are uh, flexed at the elbow differently on both sides, is one more flexed than the other. So often I'll find that uh, that the uh, someone who's got has got tennis elbow, called a tennis elbow, um, that they've got the elbow flexed on that side. Now, when they've got uh, that, then I'm looking for clues. So the clues I'm looking for is not straight away looking at the lateral elbow, but I'm looking at biceps. So that's a, another key muscle that I will be looking at because of course the biceps going to be going into the radial tuberosity and it may be shortened and maybe contributing to the movement of the radiohumeral joint. Then I'm going to have a look at the shoulder and the pec minor and whether their shoulder is anteriorly rotated on that same side more than the other side. I'll check that again when they're lying supine. So I'm gonna stand behind you, look at which um, shoulder is higher. Usually that corresponds so that we've got uh, more protraction on the painful side. And then I will always usually find that some restrictions in passive motion, not usually active motion of the cervical spine, cervical dorsal spine, top two ribs, um, and uh, I'll also be finding that on the other side, depending on how long they've had the problem, they've had it for a long time. Let's say that you, are, you were doing a particular movement that required you to rotate to the opposite side. I wanna make sure that everything's okay, thoracolumbar fascia in that uh, area, so that uh, it's on the other side, because that's important. We've got to free everything up. So the contralateral, side, the sacroiliac joint, the QL, having a look at thoracolumbar fascia, then going up, if you can imagine, cross brace across. So let's say it's your right elbow. I'm looking at left SI, thoracolumbar fascia, ribs on the right, CD on, uh, in the, on both sides. Then I'm going to look at your right side um, shoulder. Then I'm going to look at your right elbow, the bicep shortening, radiohumeral movement, radiohumeral joint. And then I'm going to look at carpal metacarpal joint on that right side as well. So that's my general overview. That's the pattern. So we, you know, after a while, you build up patterns that you see all the time with certain types of presentations. And that's the pattern that I see. And then I fix, find, fix, find as I go along, depending on how far back I have to go to, um, to find dysfunction, tension, restriction of motion. And I find that the further you are away from the site of pain, the more success you'll have. So anyone can go pain elbow, let's stick a needle in extensor carpi radialis brevis, the key muscle with lateral epicondyalgia. Anyone can do that, or they can rub it or stretch it or mobilize the radiohumeral joint. That's where the pain is, that's pretty obvious. But if you don't look at all the other things way down the track, further away, then you're going to have recurrence or uh, just not getting better really. In the, I mean, often these patients will not get better um, and, and want to, they're coming to you as a last resort. They've already been to the doctor. They might have had a cortisone shot or whatever. And so I do dry needling as well. I don't know if you want to 
expand on that? I, Do you want to talk I was going to, so I just wouldn't mind picking apart a few of the things that you said. And it's, I, I find with um, the lateral elbow pain, people have often left it for a really long time. Um, mm. So it can be quite frustrating and stubborn. So when yes. you're talking about the so shortening of the biceps and pec minor, um, are you thinking of those as sort of a secondary compensatory issue or a primary one that's leading to um, altered mechanics of the elbow? Yeah, look, a good question. Uh, both. You can have both. So you can have somebody who's been doing something, say, at the gym, and they've been doing some curls, they've been doing some other exercises, uh, lap pull downs, whatever they are, that's using the biceps, an exercise that uses the biceps, or has uh, they're doing some uh, pec work, and that's using your uh, your pecs and you're uh, now protracting the shoulder. That can then lead to altered mechanics at the shoulder. Then that flows on to the elbow, or it could be the other way around. You're using your elbow more, you know, whether you're using a hammer, a screwdriver, or some kind of um, uh, um, some kind of machinery. Uh, repetitively, then that dysfunction at the radiohumeral joint can then lead to other problems further away from the chain. So it can work either way. I don't like to, to stick to, you know, rules about, well, no, that's got to be a primary cause. This is a secondary cause. You've got to be much more flexible in, in your thinking, I think. And as I've got older and seen more people, I found that people don't fit into necessarily a box. Oh, yeah, well, that's always a primary. That's always a secondary doesn't work that way you just got to work it out for that patient what's happening on that day in your room at that time and and so what about thoracolumbar fascia what impact what's the sort of mechanical impact you think that can have and, and lead to the elbow being the weak link in the chain mm, okay so thoracolumbar fascia of course thoracolumbar so mainly the thoracics because the thoracics are the key to this so we all, you know, we all treat thoracics for most problems, neck, shoulder, uh, elbow, whatever they are. But you've got, uh, if you've got tension, let's say uh, from a standing or posture, your short leg, you're uh, sitting at your desk all day, you lean over to one side, you've got your QL tension on one side, that tension can then build up around the fascia in the mid thoracics, in the upper lumbars. If that's a problem, then that's going to put strain on your scapula and your neck. And then from there, you're going to go down to your shoulder and then the elbow. So all that tension, the key point of all of this is fascia linking all those structures that we've mentioned. So unless you fix up those problems further away and the connection is fascia, then you're not going to get long-term results. And what about, so when you're looking at the sort of cervicals and CD region, are you looking at that from a... I guess a nerve nerve supply perspective, or are you looking at that from more of a mechanical point of view? Yeah, yeah, no, no, not, definitely not a, a a nerve root problem or something like that. More of a mechanical restriction. And just going back to the thoracolumbar fascia, rotation is the key there. So mm. if you're not getting rotation, which of course happens in your thoracic spine. Well, if you can't rotate enough, let's say it's your right elbow, but you can't rotate well to the left, then you're going to have to work harder to get to the left. You're putting more strain on the muscles on that right elbow, all the way through infraspinatus, all the way through your triceps, your biceps. Everything has to work harder to then get to the left if you're not able to rotate well um, uh, in your thoracic spine. So that's the connection 
of the thoracolumbar fascia. But yes, now I'm looking at the cervical spine, the ribs, um, mid thoracics, the radiohumeral joint, all from mechanical point of view. Now, I, I was lucky, as I mentioned before, my teaching about um, mobilization, HVLA, it's called HVT in my day, high velocity technique, but we've thrown that out because that sounds no good because it sounds too serious. Um, but um, anyway, it's the same thing. I call it what you like. But we were taught in a really very simple way. Basically, a joint doesn't move. We get it to move. We're not thinking about anything else at this point. It's mechanical. So I'm not uh, thinking about a um, anything more than restriction of motion in a particular range. We mobilize that joint. It now moves. It's really very simple. I like to keep it that way. Yeah. And, and do you factor in the sympathetics at all? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, rib raising, we're going to yep. do some of that. We, we're looking at that because, you know, and, and for, for those of us who are uh, looking for the evidence, uh, you know, we, we, we are the uh, kings of uh, the sympathetics. So the autonomic nervous system, the osteopathic profession is uh, built on that, uh, looking at the autonomic nervous system. There is evidence for this. There's, there's papers uh, all about how HVLA affects the autonomic nervous system, uh, about um, how uh, rib raising affects the, the, um, the uh, autonomic nervous system and the sympathetic and the uh, system, the thoracic lymphatic pump. So all that is going to be very important in a recovery. There's papers, uh, Reschberg, 2019, Magoon, 2010, Henderson, 2010, all in osteopathic journals. We've got the actual, this is us, this is our profession. We're not looking anywhere else here. So those of us are looking, oh, that's a bit weird. We're brazing, there's no evidence for that, is there? Well, actually there is. So having a look at that stuff, is supported by by the, uh, the the evidence. So I urge you to have a look at that and uh, be confident that we are doing uh, work that is supported by the evidence. It's not just some stuff that uh, AT still used to use, and now we just forget him because that's no good anymore. Well, hang on a minute. That's uh, that's uh, we, we, what are we doing? Where are we coming from then? So have a look at the the evidence. Those three papers. Happy to supply you with the. Uh, the references there but you can great. find them but... great thank you you know we love our evidence <clears throat> yeah oh. and how what's the advantage um, of using dry needling when you're treating lateral lower pain well uh again uh thanks for that lovely segue there, mm -hmm. there. like how it, i did uh, that yeah look well look i mean uh, i i do um work um teaching dry needling of course for cpd health courses and you know we, we have to have evidence of course and there's nothing wrong with that and there's a, actually quite a lot of evidence not just for dry needling obviously but let's talk about lateral elbow pain there's some really good papers that support the techniques that we teach you which are things like fenestration and for uh, level six needling or what we define as level six needling or hong fast in out piston type needling on extensor carpi radialis brevis that's the key muscle as we mentioned so there's been four good studies 2019 2017 and 2022 interestingly a lot of works come out of turkey uh, atlas uh, 2022 uh, ugur 2017 and him again in, in 2017 and then another one 
Suzuki 2019. Now, Suzuki's study, interestingly, that's the one that supports fenestration. So they had a look at lateral elbow pain and they had a look at whether um, can dry needling help chronic lateral elbow pain that was resistant to everything for the last three months. So this is it. This is why I like it because that's, that's who we see. we see. We don't see anyone who comes in and says, yeah, my elbow's pretty sore. When did it happen? Oh, just uh, yesterday. No, that never happens. So we, we have people who've had it, been to everyone and so on, and even had surgery for it. So they did something called percutaneous tendon fenestration. Now, fenestration is comes from fenetre, which is uh, French for window. So you're making holes or windows in the ECRB tendon at the common extensor origin. And the beauty about this study is they didn't do it with ultrasound. Some of the studies will say, well, we did it ultrasound guided. So this means, well, if this study shows us that it helped, well, then we can do it in our practice. We don't need ultrasound. So that's good. So in fact, what they did, it had some outcome measures, VAS, grip strength, inertial tennis, tennis elbow score. They're calling it tennis elbow, by the way. Um, and they checked them at one, three, six, and 12 months, right? So interestingly, which again, that's why I love the, the research on this, because then it actually predicts what you're going to find. And then you can say this to, you can communicate this to your patient. It's backed up by the research, the evidence, right? So you're going to say to them that according to the evidence, which is, so going back to the study, after one month, they found no change, right? But here's the kicker, three, six, and 12 months reduction in pain and increasing group strength. So that, that's really good. So that's, that's, that's gonna be a, a deal breaker for a patient. They're supported by evidence. You're doing something that was actually tested. Okay, it's one study, but I've told you the other three as well. There are others as well as that, that uh, support the use of dry needling. So yeah, I would be needling, what am I gonna needle? Okay, I'm going to be needling supinator, key muscle. Now, now you know, there's dry needling and there's dry needling, right? Supinator, we're gonna do hold fast in out. We're gonna do twitch type needling, histening to that supinator. You have to be, dry needling is all about excellent surface anatomy. You have to know your anatomy. Deep radial nerve is right there over the supinator, okay? So we, we need to know that, we need to know that as a caution point. We need to know where, how do we find supinator? So that's the key things that will help you get from mediocre to great results. So knowing your anatomy is a key point with any dry needling. So supinator is your um, go-to muscle. Brachioradialis, now brachioradialis, interestingly, that starts under deltoid tuberosity. Not a lot of people needle it at that spot, at the origin. They always needle it distal to the elbow crease. That is not the only place that you're gonna find trigger points. You can find it further up, above the elbow. So that's a key point there. So then I'm going to look at the upper traps. That's a key muscle, of course, because you're looking down the chain as well. So upper traps, really important. So those three areas, upper traps, the uh, brachioradialis and supinator are the key muscles that I'd be using, uh, that I'd be needling. And what are you trying to achieve with your needling in the, in the origin itself? What are, what are you trying to do? Yeah. Okay. So what are we trying to do? Well, fenestration, what that is, is basically making holes in the common extensor origin. So the extensors, the wrist and fingers come off that. What we're doing is we're disrupting 
that uh, chronic degenerative process that occurs around the tendon, tendon of insertion. So it starts some bleeding, local bleeding, some fibroblast proliferation, and reduce it. Basically, it um, it super drives the body's um, body's ability to heal itself. That's what you're doing with osteopathy anyway. Look, we're not the inventors of healing your body. Your body does that. You know, you cut yourself, you don't bleed to death. Your body fixes that. What we're doing is we're just encouraging your body, kickstarting the natural process, just like soft tissue massage. What does that do? Same thing. We get rid of uh, the tension in the muscle. That gets blood flow. Blood comes to the area. Lymphatics, movement starts. If you get movement, you're going to get more better lymphatics. You're going to get rid of the inflammatory um, exudates in that area. So all those things are the important part of uh, any uh, manual therapy that you are applying. Uh, I mean, with any type of tendinopathy, you've got whether you're looking at uh, lateral uh, epicondyalgia or you're looking at Achilles tendinopathy, all those tendon problems are all related to um, not inflammation, of course. You've got a tendinosis. There's no inflammation there. So there are three things that, that happen usually around the tendon. You've got this mucoid degeneration. So you've got more of this gel-like substance around the, the fibers in the tendon. You've got this lowered blood flow. So again, moving it in the needling, uh, the, the motion in the, the joints is getting better. Disruption in the tendon fibers. Those things, and then strengthening, of course, eccentric loading, all of that adds to it. So we're really just encouraging flow of blood, uh, we are reducing pain, getting rid of those inflammatory exudates. We're encouraging the body, helping it along to do what it does best. Do you think we could get similar results to needling if we use, say, friction or soft tissue techniques? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. 100%. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that's what I say. Not everybody does needling. Uh, yeah. Doesn't happen. You can still do. Before I, I mean, I only started needling when I did an acupuncture master's degree. That's a whole new story, another story. But that was in 2000, I completed that uh, through a fascination with acupuncture, which I still have. And um, before then, so that was in 2000. Well, I qualified in 85. So do the math. For 15 years, I didn't do any needling. I didn't know one end of a needle from the other. So I was doing the same stuff with my hands. I mean, where do I needle? Right? Needle, you know, with a machine. I use my hands. My hands are my key part of my treatment. Hence my book. Just a little plug there. Two hands. <laughs> again, um, you've already uh, spoken about, of course, as well. The hands are the key because anyone can do, put a needle in a trigger point. We could get, as I always say on our courses, there's a security guard that's led us into the building. I say, remember the security guard who led us into our room today? He could actually put that needle in. Anyone can do that without any training. The key point about dry needling that is effective and is of a much higher uh, standard of effectiveness for, for, for your patient is that you know your anatomy and palpation. Palpation is the key. So if you can't find the trigger point because you haven't got good palpation, you are never going to be good at dry needling because if you can't find the trigger point, there's no, where are you going to stick the needle? So my hands are my best tool. Those, that's much more important than the needle. So never forget your hands. And that's what we love about osteopathy. That's right. That's right. We got two of them at the end of our arms. We don't need anything else.
Um, what what do you tell people about icing versus heat and, and the use of braces? So trying to, um, you know, help to maintain the changes that you've made through your manual therapy. Um, what mm. other sort of self-management things do you advise for patients? Sure. Okay. So we're still talking about tennis elbows. So, or, or in general, as you know, um, Gabe Merkin, He's the rice guy, so Dr. Gabe Merkin. So he uh, renounced the ice principle. There's good evidence now, uh, 2012, that uh, showed that uh, ice was not a good idea when you've had an acute injury. That was thrown out the window and supported by the evidence. In fact, they did a meta-analysis of the evidence that available at the time about ice and heat at the time, and they found that ice made absolutely no difference in terms of recovery um, when they used it. Now, there were two studies um, that showed that ice was effective, but that was only against heat, not on its own. So ice, bad idea for with Gabe Merkin, he's saying don't use it unless you're in pain. So not using it just because you've had an injury, just if you are in pain. So I don't recommend ice when you've had an acute injury or for tennis elbow generally, because they're usually chronic, these people, they've had it for a long time, I would be using heat. Because if you think about it, um, using ice is a bit like this. Let's say you've just had a, um, you've got uh, some chest pain and you call triple zero. Well, what do you need? You need the ambulance to arrive as soon as possible. Well, using ice is like setting up some roadworks on the path that ambulance is gonna take to your house. It slows everything down because you want to get more blood into that area. You want to get the ambulance to your house as soon as possible and you're stopping it with the ice because the ice slows the ambulance down or, and the ice is, is, the, is, is the, um, the, the roadblock. The ice is the problem. So the ambulance is gonna help you with your chest pain, but the blood flow and the swelling and the inflammation is the good stuff. That's the ambulance coming to help you. So the, the, the swelling is your body's way of bringing in the, the biochemicals that will help you recover, that will protect you, will try and reduce pain, or will sensitize issues, to, uh, sensitize your nociceptors to say, don't do that again. Don't move your arm because it hurts. If you, if you do that again, we're going to hurt you. So you stop using your arm. So you protect it. It then builds up some swelling. So you, if you bump it, there's got some cushioning there. It's got cells in there that then uh, eat dead cells that start to regenerate. It opens up your, your, um, your vascular system, getting more blood into there. Then the lymphatics come in and take all that away. And that's requiring more movement in joints as you get better with our treatment and joint mobility, rib raising, we mentioned before, all those things are the lymphatics getting things away and restoring mobility. And then finally, the strengthening of the muscles that uh, are important. And then um, also education about how to avoid this again. So the rice thing is, uh, now if somebody says to me, oh no, I use ice, it was fantastic. Well, fine, use it, no problem. I'm just telling you in general, if they have no preference, they haven't tried anything, I'm not gonna use ice unless that you are in pain. And usually these people are not actually in pain unless they move. So I wanna get more blood flow in there. If you think about what you're doing, you're doing some soft tissue work. If you did manual therapy, that's blood flow. Why are we putting ice on it then? That's the complete opposite. So I'd be uh, 
uh, encouraging them to move more, to get a hot water bottle, all those things rather than the ice. What about if they've got some post-treatment soreness? Would yeah. you say, look, yeah. even though it's sore, don't use ice? Or Yeah, I'm, look, um, I'm, I'm a, maybe a little bit tougher on the patients. Now, it depends on post-treatment soreness. Now, is that is that pain or is it just soreness? You know, I, I like you to, because otherwise you can then scare patients and they think, oh, it's sore. He's told me to do something about it. That then now raises the stakes a little bit. They're thinking every time I'm sore, that's a bad thing. I've got to put ice on it. So it depends on the patient. If the patient is robust, they're clear and, and trusting of what you're saying, then I wouldn't be necessarily using ice then either because it's going to slow things down. But if they are particularly sensitive maybe, or they're, uh, so you know that because you're treating them and, and you know how sensitive they're going to be, then you, you need to give them strict instructions that if they are going to use ice, it's only going to be for a short period of time. We need you to keep moving, get you moving, get you exercising and so on. Yeah, I guess if you've spent your treatment trying to increase blood flow to the area and then they go home and put some ice on it, it could be a little bit counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what about braces? Yeah, I like the Ace Tennis Elbow Support, the one with the little knobbly bit in, in there. I'm not sure what it's called, but probably called a tennis elbow brace, but the, the one that actually fits over extensor carpi radialis brevis. So I usually put it on uh, not the way they tell you, I tell you, I put it in about three fingers down from the elbow crease and I find the most tender spot. I put that little nodule, the nodule thing that they've got on the inside of it over that tendon area. And then we tighten it up to the point where it's just before it's uncomfortable. I want you to wear it all day, every day, only take it off at night. And I'll do that for seven to 14 days after I've seen you. Um, that's my go-to with the brace. Okay. And what do you um, advise patients with the natural history of lateral elbow pain and, and how frequently you'd like to treat them? Yeah, look, I like to think three to five is good, three to five weeks, twice in the first week, twice in the second week, once after that uh, in the weeks after it. We might spread things out as you get better. Uh, often we as osteopaths, we're taught that once a week is the religion, the Bible saying that. Uh, I hope I haven't offended anyone, by the way, um, that uh, we, we must have once a week. Well, hang on a minute. Well, who's the expert here? If you tell a patient, I've never found a patient yet that will say, oh, well, I'm not sure I can come twice a week. You want to get better. If you think they need twice a week, especially if they're in pain and yet they want to get on top of this, then you need to tell them why you need to see them twice a week. So twice a week, first two weeks, once after that for about three, two to three weeks after that. Again, I think you've mentioned in a previous conversation that we've had that a week is a long time for them to then go and, and stir things up. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, a couple of right, times exactly. to try and interrupt that, that process, I think is a really good advice. Well, based on the fact that people only remember probably one or two sentences that you've told them, the first and the last one, then everything in the middle they've forgotten. So part of the, the treatment isn't just the treatment. It is the conversation, the education, the uh, support and the explanation about what you're doing, the three main things, what's wrong with me, what are you going to do about it and how long is it going to take, that conversation that's important as far as seeing them regularly 
And if you're not seeing them every, you're only seeing them once a week, that can be forgotten. And then your treatment then goes downhill. And they don't care whether you thought that you should have seen them twice a week or not. You didn't. So now they know better. They're not coming back. And I think uh, I know one one barrier that holds me back sometimes is, is thinking of what it's going to cost people. Mm, um, yeah. But when you sort of weigh up, well, months down the track, you might have to end up seeing your GP and having some sort of imaging and then maybe seeing a sports doctor and then having a cortisone shot mm. and you sort of add up the costs of all of that yes. versus um, having some more frequent osteopathic treatment. You know, it can help to, to look at it that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. You look, I mean, that, that's a, always what, what we think of, isn't it? We, we put ourselves in the shoes of our patient. That sounds a lot. I'm not sure I should say that. Mm. But as you rightly, um, the, the problem with that thinking is that you don't know whether your patient can afford that or not. You've no idea how much uh, disposable income the, this patient has. How important is this? So it's all about uh, the communication method. So it's all about what I call treatment room choreography. So that means what you say, how you say it, where you stand when you say it, where they are when you are speaking with them, which order you say things in. These are all vital parts of the communication process that you need to have from the minute they engage with you before they've even turned up at your practice, the, the uh, onboarding system, the welcoming system, uh, the case history presentation, who goes into the room first, uh, where they sit in relation to you, all that adds amazing amount of, um, of, of value to your patient. And if it's done wrong, you're already on an uphill battle. Uh, it, it's a problem. Yeah, building that that trust and, and communication is fundamental in building a good relationship with our patient, definitely. Yeah, well, if you compare it to other people, I mean, let's compare it to um, other professions, okay? So there are, I, I was talking to a chiropractor today and I have the greatest respect for chiropractors. In fact, they, of all the professions, are probably closest to us than any of the others, in my opinion. Um, in terms of, well, historically, of course, they are. Um, but in terms of how they've stuck to their guns in terms of, well, that's what we do, HVLA, that's what they do. They've, they've really been very strong on that, although we, we won't go into more detail about that. But going back to cost, she was telling me that, I saying to her, well, how many patients do you see? She said, in a day. She said, well, I see uh, four every hour. So that's one every 15 minutes. And that's, she said, I'm a bit slow though. I used to work for a guy who sees four every 15 minutes. Now, so look at the value there. Like that's our closest neighbor, the chiropractor, okay? Who I have greatest respect for, very much so. And, and people will go and see a chiropractor and they'll spend 15 minutes and they'll spend about the same amount of money as they are with seeing you for half an hour. So hang on a minute. Can we see somebody in two weeks, for twice a week? I think we can. Yeah, agreed. Definitely agree. Um, all right, we might move a little bit further through the upper limb and um, talk about another condition that can be a little bit frustrating and tricky to treat. So can you talk about how you approach a frozen shoulder? 
frozen shoulder. Well, this is another good one, uh, frozen shoulder. Uh, again, it's a bit like uh, lateral elbow pain, nearly called it tennis elbow pain. Um, frozen shoulder is a bit like that because it's chronic usually, of course, you're looking at 12 to 18 months. Uh, it's um, more women than men, um, but 50, uh, you're going to look at, um, let's look at the, the diagnosis first. You've got, you know, the usual orthopedic stuff, external rotation loss of more than 50%, or you've got less than 30 degrees, the, the difference between the, 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 the sides. You've got a range of motion decreased in two planes by at least a quarter or, or 25%. All these things are really, it's very easy to, 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 uh, to diagnose uh, your frozen shoulder. Uh, but, um, and usually somebody else has diagnosed it for you. They'll come in and say, oh, I've got frozen shoulder. Okay, well, let's have a look at that. I, I usually like that the external rotation loss is the, the best one for me. I just get you to stand um, <clears throat> against a door and then I'll have you turn your arms out. And as soon as you do that, um, and you can see one arm can externally rotate more than the other, and it's usually very clear, very obvious. They'll only be able to get to about 30 degrees usually on one side, and then the other one's all the way around. Now, I know that you should be doing this sitting, bracing, and so on, but it, you can do that as well, but I find that the one just standing against the door works just as well, and uh, that, that's my key one for uh, orthopedic testing, external rotation test. Uh, for diagnosing that, apart from, of course, the, the, the history. Um, and, but let's get to the, the, the juicy bits, the spicy bits. Well, how am I going to treat this as a osteopath? Because they've come in to see me and they, they want something different because, they, again, they've seen every Tom, Dick and Harry. They've had, their, had the hydrodilatation and uh, that didn't work or it did uh, for a short time. And, and, it, and it's really debilitating. So key muscle here, subscap, that's your muscle. You, now, I'll tell you what I'd do to it. Obviously I'd needle it if it was something that, if it was indicated that subscap um, was, uh, had trigger points in it and it will pretty much 99% will have, but uh, whether it, there's no contraindications to needling or the patient doesn't want to have needling, that's fine, I'll do manual therapy to it. But subscap is my go-to muscle. And always, we will see that the, the thing is that subscap with needling, I'm going to get into the lateral portion and the medial portion. Very difficult to get into the medial portion of subscap um, under that medial border of the scapula with manual therapy. You can with, but more like it's really indirect, it's not specific, but with a needle, you can go straight to a trigger point very easily. So the way you do it, uh, manually is you've got them prone. You are going to glide the scapula laterally, exposing the lateral portion anteriorly of the subscap fossa, and you get under it with your fingers and work in there. Problem with that is exquisitely painful, not good. So if you've got someone who's uh, not keen on a lot of pain, it's going to be quite uh, uncomfortable. You might be thinking, well, you're going to stick a needle in it. How painful is that? Actually, that lasts less time and it is very uh, comfortable as long as you know what you're doing and how you're doing. It's all about the technique. Then we've got the medial portion of subscap. Well, that can be needled um, uh, very easily, sideline, and you're doing pong fast in out. You're doing piston type needling for that. 
you can't be doing lever needle in there and uh, and see how you go. You've got the rib cage right there, so you can't be doing that. You've got to have your needle in your hand doing uh, twitch type needling. So it's difficult to do any other type of needling there. You can, of course, do other muscles like infraspinatus, that's okay. But subscap, difficult to leave your needle in there, unsafe. So um, what I would do, as if you didn't want to do that, if you didn't want to, you can't do dry needling for whatever reason, I'd do subscap with the, so you do the lateral portion with the manual therapy, soft tissue work there, but you can do the medial side of subscap with the scapular um, uh, tug or, or the scapular rotation, the sideline one, where you're grabbing onto the medial uh, border of the, the scapula under the arm and rotating it. I love that technique. I do it anyway. Rib heads again for sympathetics. So on that side, so I might be looking at mobilizing those rib heads, some rib raising. I'd definitely be looking at mobilizing the mid thoracics, T2, T7, that range there, really important. Um, I'd have a look at the um, mechanics of the glenohumeral joint. Again, pec minor, that's another one. Have a look at that because we've got altered mechanics there, more protracted. We've got a problem there. So that's going to affect internal rotators of your, um, uh, of your shoulder joint. So that's going to be a subscap. We're going to have a look at QL um, on the um, same side. Again, thoracolumbar fascia. Have a look at that as well. QL is my, just treat that all the time really important muscle that one that's going to be holding those ribs down so if that's tight that's going to be holding those ribs down if those ribs are not moving you've got serratus anterior as well that's another problem of course attached to medial scapular uh, border that's going to affect the scapular uh, movement as well lower cervicals and the uh, lower ribs as well uh, sorry the upper ribs uh, also important articulation of the glenohumeral joint ap glide um, and, and a good one that I like to sort of, uh, when people say, well, how did I get this? And of course, it's idiopathic. Idiopathic is a lovely term, isn't it? Because people say, well, it's idiopathic. Well, they say that in literature. What that means is we have no idea. It doesn't mean um, that there is no reason. There is a reason. We just don't know what it is. There's a reason for everything. So, um, so when, when a patient comes and says, well, how did I get this? I've got one patient that you lovely lady she's about 82 and whatever is wrong with her it's her feet actually that i treat and her legs and if i tell her you know if i make the mistake of well we're going to work on this this area today she always says how did i get this but she says that every time i speak to her and it's the same answer every time it's almost like it's groundhog day so people want to know it doesn't matter forget what happened last time delete that part of the hard drive you didn't tell them last time tell them again so anyway back to the, the 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 frozen shoulder how did i get this well the answer is we don't know but one of the possibilities is the way you sit at your desk so i get you to stand up and i get you to tuck your shirt in or your blouse or your t-shirt whatever it is and really tuck it in tight so it's going to work right so then it forces you into that flex position so now i want you to raise your arms above your head even the good one now the good shoulder can't get past 70 degrees perhaps now oh, oh that's a a, a a a pinnacle time that the penny has dropped then um pivotal time because they've now get it they now get that when you sit at your desk and you're slouching like i do um then that's not good for your shoulder when you're hunched over like that that can lead to shortening of your capsule it can lead to lack of mobility in your thoracic spine all that then leads to where your shoulder goes oh god 
you know, can't be bothered with this. I'm sitting all day like this. Why should I put my arm above my head? Never gets there. It's no point. I'm going to stop it. Now, I don't know whether that's happened to you. But it's a really nice little analogy to give to your patient to go, wow, pennies dropped. Oh, I better sit up straight. And it works for at least five minutes. <laughs> I mean, hey. They, they remember it while you're there and I guarantee they'll go home and they'll tell their husband or wife or kids, try this. And it, and it makes sense to them. I, th- I think we learned that as uh, people having a problem with their furniture. I think that's how it was put to us. Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, um, it was like your shirt stuck in your drawers or something like that. Oh, um, right. So that, yeah, that postural, postural strain really does underpin so much of what... <laughs> what comes into us I mean how do you have any great exercises or, or things that you tell people to to help maintain the changes that you've you've tried to get through your treatment so facilitating thoracic mobility and lengthening those anterior soft tissues yeah yeah look absolutely and, and, I, and as I've got um, older and I, I can say this about exercises and things that supplement my treatment. I started out at the British School of Osteopathy uh, 37 years ago now, I think. And I, all the exercises I gave you were pulling your knees up towards your chest. That worked for me for about 20 years. So I'm thinking, you know what? Works for me. Why should I do any other exercises? People, I mean, exercises are great. Don't get me wrong. But who does them? I mean, which patient do you know religiously does everything you tell them? Very few people. And my experience is that people want your help in the treatment room. They have come to you to get your hands on their pain and fix it. That's what they want. The exercises, they all sound very keen about it when they're in your room. You go, oh, look, yeah haven't done them much no sorry whatever so that is a good thing but it's almost like a uh, look it's like an insurance policy you've done your job by giving them the exercises knowing they're likely 90 percent not to ever do them or do them for the first week and forget about them that's why the emphasis is not on the exercises for me it is on the things that i can do and they can't that's the whole point if i wanted them just to do exercises i'd send them to an ep or someone who, or a personal trainer, and I'd ring them up and I'd tell them, this is what I'd like you to do with this person and so on. And this is what I found and so on. I've done that many times because for me, I'm not an expert in exercises. I'm an expert in hands-on therapy. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. That's what I've trained to be and so on. My training didn't teach me how to be a PT or an exercise therapist or whatever. And so... But I give you exercises, though, because I know that that's what you're probably looking for and just to due diligence. So what are the ones I would give you for a a frozen shoulder? I want to open out your thoracics. That's your main thing. So the foam roller is my go to. Love that one. They've got to have one for a start. They don't. Then we can use a towel, of course, lengthways or horizontally. There's other exercises that I like to do. I mean, I know I'm going to scare off exercises again, but only to to, to uh, show you how uh, important and how we've already got these skills. So the Sphinx position, uh, thoracic extension, osteopathic technique, prone, love that. I mean, that is so strong. I mean, you can, you can really get some great results with that to follow up after, um, after mobilizing the thoracics, the ribs, 
in that prone position. It's a little bit hard to work with a bigger person, but it's a really nice technique. Are you familiar with that? Shall I explain yeah, that? Yeah. Do you, no, no, no. Um, do you give that as a, a static hold or do you get yeah. them to do more of a, you know, a, a push-up type of? Yeah, as a push-up. Yeah. And then also there's the downward dog if you've got, you know, yep. someone who's yoga uh, proficient. But again, the problem with exercises as well is the form. If I show you something and, and, and you, you try not to laugh at somebody, when they're doing that, even you've just explained it to them, you've actually shown them it, then it's their turn. You've got a 50, 60-year-old person, even, even younger, it's not an age thing. They've got no idea what they're doing. They think, mm, okay, this is going to go pear-shaped, isn't it? So um, there's a danger there because the exercise can make you worse. But what I can guarantee is what happens in my room is going to help you. But what you do out your side of your practice, what, what you do in your in your um in your home with the exercise of you, I've got a lot less control over that. You've got to be very careful that you're not giving somebody something that could make them worse. And then they go, well, that treatment didn't help me. They won't even think about the exercises. They'll just be thinking about what you did in the room. Okay. I, I certainly find that just aiming for prevention, um, giving some postural exercises for people to do every day can be quite effective, but you are quite right in um, some people lack some coordination. Um, but mm, I generally, yeah. generally find lying on the foam roller can be a, a relatively safe one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the foam roller thing is safe. You've got to have one, though. Uh, some people will fall off it and whatever. Or oh, yes, use that, it. Is, that is the risk, yes. I mean, uh, the, the, the go-to ones I've ever given from the start of my career of bending your knees up towards your chest, holding 10 seconds, arms straight, doing that 10 times, holding it 10 seconds. People love that. I've got patients that will not start the day until they have done that. I've got one particular person who it's like a religion for him. It's like brushing his teeth. He will do it every day because he loves it. Then there might be, you know, sitting on your hands, bringing your ears to your shoulder. That's how simple my exercises usually are. If I want to go a little bit more um, uh, um, outside the box, then I might use things like I've just talked about, but they'll have to be to the right patient. Someone who's already doing exercise has a personal trainer, not somebody who's likely to, when you ask them to stand on one leg for improving their balance, fall over and break their arm or something. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to um, ask another question about subscap. So if, yeah. you, if you release subscap, whether it be needling or um, soft tissue work, do you expect mm -hmm. to see immediate changes in their external rotation range after the treatment? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the, the thing is that let's say I'm doing, um, I, I'm a really big fan of this um, particular process. So you come in, you reach behind you and you do internal rotation. How far can you go? You get to your belt or whatever it is, right? Or, you know, it's abduction and you can only get to this point. You know, you stand them next to a door. Okay, you've got to this point. Let's get you down. Let's have a look. So I do my best. I do all the things, the subscap, whatever it is I'm going to do. Right. Then at 10 minutes later or whenever I finish that particular um, uh, work that I've done, whether it's the dry needling, the manual therapy, the mobilization, Okay, let's stand up. Let's have a look. Let's look at you now. No, no, no different. Uh, or, oh, that's good. But I think we can do better. Okay, let's get up in another five minutes after I've done the next thing. So now we're getting this constant, it's a wonderful way of A, 
checking what's happening according to what you are doing. So you know then what works and doesn't work for this particular problem in this particular patient on that day. So that's great. Your patient gets to see tangible results or otherwise straight away. It's just as important to know what works as doesn't work. And the other thing is that this uh, patient now knows how invested you are in their progress. And, and so this is a key point that, wow, this guy's different, or this lady's different. But what's happening is he's like, he really wants to know whether what he's doing, he's not just going, this will help you. And then at 25 minutes past, you've just done all this work. Say so you start at uh, one o'clock, it's now uh, 1.25, you get up and all the things you've done have made absolutely no difference whatsoever. Now you have less than five minutes to fix it. No good. I want to know after 10 minutes if what I've done has returned an, in, on an investment that I've made. That's why I check as I go along, especially with problems like that that are not easy to treat. And do you normally find if you, if you did get a significant change in external rotation that that would still be the case at the next treatment? Or would you expect with frozen shoulder that will regress? Yes, definitely. I would expect that uh, that uh, the, uh, the improvement that you're going to get at your treatment stays within a plus 10% or minus 10% level. It's not going to go back to where it was. When you get those results in a chronic problem, you get real tissue change. I find that that stays with that patient for plus or minus. They might just regress a little bit or they might keep improving. Uh, this is within a small range, but they're definitely not going to go backward once you've got those changes. If you've made real changes to the really um, tight tissues, shortened tissues, and as long as you follow that up with explaining to them what you want them to do, what you don't want them to do, whether that's exercise or stretching, whatever, then they're going to retain those gains. And, and do you expect to get more rapid functional gains and pain reduction than the advised, you know, 12 to 18 month natural history for the frozen shoulder? Uh, look, not necessarily. I'm not going to make it up and say, yeah, most people are actually better in two weeks, you know. Uh, no, I'm not going to be saying that to you. But what I will say to you is that the person has found that you have told them what's wrong with them. You have told them what you're going to do about it. And you have told them how long it's going to take. But what I have found is that the pain levels that they're in, the discomfort, were reduced. But as far as restriction of motion, that's still variable. It's not something that I can tell you for sure you're going to get a lot of, uh, the change is going to be less than, uh, you're going to be better in less than 18 months. What I, I never say that, but what I say, I hope for that. But what I've seen is that patients do, um, they don't really worry about how long it's taking. It's more the case that somebody is caring for them. I do find that though the approach to getting a shorter period of time for your uh, pain to go away is to treat more globally as we do as osteopaths than rather than focusing on the shoulder only. You've got to look elsewhere. And when you've done that, they appreciate that. They know that you are really caring for them. And it's much more, um, it's just a nicer treatment. You're giving something to somebody. You really are uh, caring for that person. Now, the doctor might have told them, look, mate, this is not going to get better for 18 months. Bad luck. Just put up with it. Well, that's their alternative. Or let's have some treatment along the way. I might feel better. I might be able to do 
things that I wouldn't otherwise um, be able to do. I know what's wrong with me. I know that it roughly may take 18 months and maybe less. Great. But that's a much better situation than the alternative of, look, this just sort of thing that just burns itself out. What would you rather? Yeah. Yep. Caring in incremental changes. Yeah, absolutely. It just, you know, really helping somebody uh, getting through that tough time of yeah. understanding they're in pain and, and you know tell them what's wrong and, and this is the natural history and yeah if you if you are going to get better quicker great if not it's still going to be a better situation than not knowing what's wrong with you or how long it's going to take and yeah I think yeah we can forget about the the value of supporting somebody through a chronic condition and how frustrating yeah. it is to them um, mm -hmm. and and the impact that it can have on their life as well so yeah, I think you've touched on a really good point there that, that that care and that support can actually make quite a big difference for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll ask my last question here. So given that it is a persistent condition, what what is your ideal frequency of treatment over a long period of time for this? Uh, this is uh, for frozen shoulder. For frozen shoulder, yeah. So... Yeah, it depends on when I am going to when I'm going to see them on the uh, the road of frozen shoulder. We don't generally, as osteopaths, tend to see people early on with this because um, they get misdiagnosed or they've gone to see someone else or whatever it is. So we tend to see them in the last twelve months of the the process anyway. So and it is also something that it's not like tennis elbow. Uh, I said tennis elbow again. Uh, not like tennis elbow in terms of um, debilitation. It is a problem, but they've sort of put up with it by then. And it's not, they've sort of learned ways to get around the problem of their shoulder rather than the elbow, everything that, you know, shaking hands, turning, and all the things, you know, that, you know, uh, are going to cause a problem. So I'm not so, uh, and also it's going to be a long term problem. So therefore, I'm not going to see you twice a week for two weeks, like the, the uh, lateral elbow pain problem. I'm going to see you once a week, uh, probably for the first four to six weeks to get on top of it. And then I'm going to spread things out to once every two, then once every four. And then we keep going like that until we uh, agree to how you improve. So once a week is, is my option at the beginning to really get stuck in as soon as I, I see it around a, a 30 to 50 percent improvement then at the end of that six week period then i which i will tell you i'll say look if this isn't helping after four to four weeks four to six weeks then we've either got the wrong diagnosis or i can't help you but usually what happens is you've got some improvement they're happy they're by buying in they're bought in and four to six weeks they've, they've got some improvement in what we're looking for and then we can spread things out so you've got now some currency you can say well look this is improved let's keep going but now we'll see you spread things out so they're the ones actually you know you when you've got it right when they tell you uh, after you say to them well i'll see you in two weeks and they say no no i want to really come back next week that's when you know that you've got it right fantastic well we are, I've really loved this discussion. I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I feel like we've all had a, very, a mini mentoring session. So we're very privileged 
Um, many of the things you mentioned in the first half of the interview um, really resonated with me and I'm sure that the audience will feel the same. And you've been very generous sharing some of the clinical insights you've gained over your decades of experience and, and helping us to appreciate our unique gift of working with our hands and our wonderful profession of osteopathy. So thank you again for your time um, and all the best with your practice and your courses. Thank you, Emily. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you and speaking to the wider osteopathic community. As I mentioned, uh, it's a great privilege to be part of this wonderful profession. It's uh, given me so much pleasure over the last uh, few years, a uh, few uh, 10, uh, uh, 20, maybe 30 uh, years. Maybe 36. <laughs> And uh, look, it's done a lot for me. And what I, I love about doing what I do now is uh, mentoring my daughter. And I love helping her because I know that just like when we treat a patient, we're not just treating a patient, we're treating everyone as part of that family. We're treating the network around that patient, which helps so many more people. Well, by helping my daughter, I know that she's going to be able to then help more people uh, when I finally hang up my shingles, which won't be anytime soon. I've always <laughs> said that I'm treating in my room because I love treating people. I love people. That's why we do it. And I especially love it because I have two hands and that's all I need to help somebody. Thank you very much. Well, your, your daughter is very lucky and it's wonderful to, to hear from somebody who was still passionate um, after being in practice for that many years. So um, it's wonderful. And I'll pop links to your books and your website and some of the articles we talked about as well. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.